Andrew Womack Ministries presents part two in the Killing Sacred Cows series, a five-part album. This teaching by Andrew is titled, Split Personality. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. Today I'm beginning my second teaching on a subject that I've entitled, Killing Sacred Cows. You know, this picture on the front of my album is a cow here with a wooden leg and a butcher chasing it. and. Uh, you may wonder why I've got that, but you know, there's no easy way to kill a cow. You can't just kill it a little bit at a time. You just got to butcher it and then eat it. And likewise, there's no easy way to come against some of these sacred doctrines that are contrary to the Word of God that are causing people to err. Jesus said over in Mark chapter 7, verse 13, that your traditions and doctrines of man have made the Word of God of none effect. So what I want to talk about today, and this is kind of complementary to what I was teaching about the sovereignty of God, but I want to show you the difference between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. And because people don't have this figured out and they don't have it in its proper context, it has given a wrong impression of God. And we've got to kill this wrong concept. Most Christians today are living under a combination of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant mixed together. Did you know that to the average person, the only difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is a blank page? It's just like a divider between a book or something. But they don't understand that the Old Covenant, the word covenant means contract. There was an old contract, a covenant that was cut with, between God and man. But now we've got a new covenant, and our new covenant is infinitely superior, and God deals with us differently. And under the old covenant, God did things that He will never do under the new covenant. And see, if all you think is that the difference is just one blank page, and if you try and run all of this together, and you try and make God and understand God based on a combination of this Old Covenant and New Covenant, then you're going to come up with, at the very best, you're going to think that God is schizophrenic. Is He the God of the Old Covenant? Is He going to judge and punish me and reject me because of my sin? Or is He going to be the God of the New Covenant where He extends mercy towards me? You're going to wonder, is He in a good mood or in a bad mood? Is He a New Covenant mood or an Old Covenant mood today? That's the best thing that could come out of it. And the worst thing that comes out of it is that you think God is this harsh, mean God who has forgiveness, but He's very restrictive, very... Uh, selective about how He dishes it out. And boy, if you don't do everything right, instead of the goodness of the New Covenant, the wrath of the Old Covenant is going to come upon you. And I tell you, both of those are wrong. Both of those things are wrong. Let me use a passage of Scripture over here in 1 Kings. And I'm going to make a radical statement here. I pray that you continue to listen to me and give me the opportunity to explain this because I'm going to say something here that's radical, but it's true. And that is that some of the misrepresentations about God come from Scripture. And somebody's thinking, so you're saying that the Scripture is wrong? Nope. I believe every word, I believe every jot and tittle, uh, a dotting of an I or crossing of a T, I believe all of this, but 
There were ways that God dealt with us under the old covenant that he will not deal with us today. And many people don't see this. And so they transpose these things that happened in the old covenant into the new covenant. And that's wrong. And so over here in 2 Kings chapter 1, let me just give you an illustration here of what I'm talking about. Um, in 2 Kings chapter 1, there was a king named Ahaziah, and he came from a very ungodly family. Ahab and Jezebel were his parents. Ahab was the worst king that ever ruled Israel up until that time. And his son Ahaziah had followed in his footsteps. He fell down through a roof, hurt himself. There was something like an infection, and he was in bed. And instead of sending his people to Elisha, the prophet of God, who he was well acquainted with, instead he sent his servants to Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, to inquire whether he could be cured of his diseases. And when Elisha was told about this from the Lord, he didn't know this in the natural, God just told him he went and intercepted these messengers who were going to Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, and they said, because Ahaziah has inquired of a demonic God instead of the God of Israel, therefore he's going to die. He won't get up off the bed he's laying on. So the messengers turned around and came back and told him. And he says, who told you this? And they said, he was a man that was a hairy man and dressed with a leathern girdle. And he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. So he sent his armies out to take Elisha. So that's the story. And here in uh, 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 9, it says, The king sent unto him a captain of fifty with his fifty. And he went up to him, and behold, he sat on the top of a hill, and he spake unto him, Thou man of God, the king hath said, Come down. And Elijah answered and said unto the man, to the captain of fifty, If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Man, this is pretty powerful. God defended Elijah supernaturally, and I guess it was like a bolt of lightning just came from heaven and killed 51 men. Then in verse 11, it says, Again, also he sent unto him another captain of 50 with his 50. And he answered and said unto him, O man of God, thus hath the king said, Come down quickly. And Elijah answered and said unto them, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. This wasn't the fire of the devil. This wasn't just some natural occurrence that just, you know, lightning happened to strike twice in the same place. This was the fire of God. The wrath of God came and now he had killed a hundred and two men. So in the next verse, it says, And he sent again a captain of the third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and besought him and said unto him, O man of God, I pray thee, let my life and the life of these fifty thy servants be precious in thy sight. Behold, there came down fire from heaven and burned up the two captains of the former fifties with their fifties. Therefore, let my life now be precious in thy sight." And the angel of the Lord said unto Elijah, Go down with him, be not afraid of him. And he arose, and he went down, and he talked to the king and gave him this prophecy, and the king died according to his word. So this happened in the old covenant. The wrath of God fell and killed 102 soldiers who were doing what the king commanded them to do. Now look over here in Luke 
chapter 7 in the New Testament. What I'm doing, I'm trying to contrast and show you that there's a difference between the way God dealt with people in the Old Covenant and the way He deals in the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, in Luke chapter 7, it says, um, or excuse me, it's Luke chapter 9, I believe. I was in the wrong chapter, wrong deal. Luke chapter 9 in verse 50... Something it says in verse 51, And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven? and consume them, even as Elias did. You know what they're doing? They're wanting to emulate 2 Kings chapter 1, where Elijah called fire down from heaven and killed 102 men. And so here they are saying, do you want us to call fire down from heaven the way that Elijah did? And look at Jesus' response. In verse 55, he, but he turned and rebuked them and said, you know not what manners of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy man's lives, but to save them. And he went to another village. Do you realize that Jesus rebuked James and John for wanting to do what Elijah did? They were wanting to copy a mighty man of God that called down fire and killed 102 people. And when they wanted to do it, Jesus rebuked them. Let me make a radical statement. If Jesus would have been present in His physical body in 2 Kings chapter 1 during the ministry of Elijah, He would have rebuked Elijah for what he did. And yet, it was not wrong what he did in the Old Covenant because these people were under the wrath of God. They were under the punishment of God. God was dealing harshly with sin, but in the New Covenant, we have a different contract, a different covenant, and God doesn't treat people this way. Under the New Testament, we are not under the law or under this wrath again. And so my point is that, see, most people think that we are still under the law, that the law was given to somehow or another make us closer to God, to bring us closer to help us overcome sin. That is not the purpose of the law. The law was given to bind us. It was given to hurt us. It was given to make sin come alive. It was given to allow sin to destroy us and kill us. And somebody said, well, why would God give something like that? The reason He did this is because sin was already beating us. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. And people weren't realizing how deadly sin were. They were thinking, well, Cain got by with killing Abel, and he didn't die. God protected him. Lamech got by with killing a person in self-defense. And they begin to compare themselves among themselves and measure themselves by themselves, which the Bible says is not wise. And they lost their sense of right and wrong. And because there wasn't a punishment and a wrath from God falling upon them for their sin, they begin to think, well, sin's not that bad. I'm relatively good relative to everybody else. See, this is what people are saying today. People are comparing themselves and saying, well, there's nobody perfect, but I'm a relatively good person 
I believe that my good is going to outweigh my bad, and because of it, you know, it'll tip the scales and God will accept me. But no, the Bible says if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. James chapter 2, verse 10. If all you do is one minor sin in your entire life, you have missed the mark. You have sinned. You've come short of the glory of God. And Romans 6, 23 says the wages of sin is death. If you have committed one sin in your entire life, you are headed to hell unless you receive the salvation that comes through Jesus. So one of the purposes of the law was to take away this comparative worth and self-worth and make you think that, well, I'm, I'm good, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than this person. The law came along to show you how ungodly you were and make sin so big to magnify and amplify sin and make it so bad that you would throw yourself on the mercy of God and say, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It was to get rid of self-righteousness. But... When this law was given, the good thing it did, it showed you your sin and showed you that you couldn't save yourself and made you throw yourself on the mercy of God. But it also brought a lot of condemnation, a lot of guilt. And many people just thought, God, you could never have a relationship with me. You could never forgive me. So it's similar to some of these pills that you, know, you see advertised on television. They say, take this pill for your headache. But then they list the side effects. It could cause death. It can cause impotence. It can cause... And, and after they get through talking about all the side effects, I think, man, give me back my headache. The side effects are terrible. It makes you wonder why people would take a medication that has these terrible side effects with it. Well, in a sense, the law is like that. It served a purpose. It took away your self-righteousness and showed you that you might be better than I am, but you've still sinned and come short of the glory of God. And it shut you up unto faith and showed you the only way you were ever going to get forgiveness from God wasn't through being a good person, but it's through asking for mercy and forgiveness and accepting salvation through Jesus. So that was good, but then the negative side effects of the law were condemnation, guilt, and on and on and on it goes. And that was never God's best. If it would have been His best, He would have given it to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He wouldn't have waited 2,000 years. And He wouldn't have ceased to have the law be the way that He deals with us. But now we are no longer under the law. Romans chapter 7 says that. We are not under the law, that being dead wherein we were held. We are not to serve God in the oldness of the letter, but in the newness of the Spirit. And so God never intended this for, to be His way. That's the reason He waited 2,000 years to give it. And if you don't understand this, if you just think that the Old Testament law and the New Testament grace are compatible, well, then you don't understand this passage that I just read to you where Jesus rebuked His disciples for wanting to do what the Old Testament law commanded to be done. But Jesus said, you don't know what manner of spirit you are of. Did you know that these disciples were more justified than Elijah in calling fire down from heaven? It turned out that Elijah didn't have to do that. The angel of the Lord told him, says, go with him, I'll protect you. And he was. He didn't have to kill those men. And yet he did it because there was a harshness, a wrath, a punishment under the Old Testament law that many people think is still in effect today. But when Jesus' disciples tried to do it, and they were more justified. Because did you know that 
these uh, Samaritans knew who Jesus was. You can read about it in the fourth chapter of John. They had accepted Him as Messiah. But when they saw He was going to Jerusalem to worship with the people that they considered their enemies, they shunned Him. They, this was rejection. This was worse than what happened in Second Kings chapter 1. And yet Jesus says, we aren't going to punish them. We aren't going to judge them. Jesus didn't come to bring judgment, but to bring forgiveness. We live under a new covenant. And if you don't understand this, it will void. It will negate the power of God's love to you. Let me turn over to Hebrews chapter 7. I tell you, if Hebrews is not one of your favorite books in the Bible, it's probably because you are living under the law. If you are under the law, it just blinds you to these things. But man, once you understand this, the book of Hebrews is a masterpiece on coming out from under the law and using the Old Testament law scriptures to show how that this was always God's plan, that the law was just a temporary thing given for a brief period of time. But God had a better thing, the new covenant that we live under today. So let me use just a few verses here. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18. It says, For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. Did you know that the words that are being used right here, this is offensive to people who are still embracing and living under the law. Because first of all, the word disannulling, it is a very strong word. If you annul something, that means you just voided it. Like for instance, if, a, if people get married, you know, you can... Uh, uh, some, you can file for your marriage to be annulled, but it has to be done quickly. You can't be married for a year or something like that and then annul your marriage. But uh, you can annul a marriage, but if you annul a marriage, it's it, legally, it's just like it never happened. It's like it was never there. You were never married. So the word annul is a very strong word, but to disannul is just a strengthening of this word. And it literally is talking about a total doing away. It's just gone. There is a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. And you know, this really comes down to the crux of the matter. The reason so many people get offended when you start talking about the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, it's because they don't want to say that the Old Covenant was weak and unprofitable. They believe it was awesome. And it was awesome compared to nothing. It was a temporary measure. Uh, Galatians chapter 3 says that it was only temporary until the seed should come to whom the promises were made. And it served a purpose and it was good at the time, but it is wrong for us to try and live under it today. And these are words that are offensive to the average person who embraces the law and is a legalist. You know, I hadn't got time to explain this, but I'm just going to say it because I know some of you are misunderstanding what I'm saying. There is still a function of the law for us today, even as New Testament believers, but it's not to live under it and to relate to God by it. And I'm just not going to take any more time to defend it than that. But in verse 19, this is Hebrews 7, 19, For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. So this is contrasting the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. The Old Covenant didn't ever make anybody perfect, which a lot of people think, oh yeah, it was given to make you perfect. No, it wasn't. It was given to kill, to destroy, to make sin come alive. It actually makes you sin more, the Old Testament law. 
but the bringing in of a better hope did. And I'm just going to skip through some verses here, down into chapter 8 in verse 6. It says, But now hath he, speaking of Jesus, obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. In verse 7, this Hebrews 8, 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. Nobody can relate to God under the old covenant and have confidence, boldness, acceptance, and a great relationship with God because the law is going to always condemn you. And because it was conditional upon performance, then the law was voided. It was violated. We violated it by breaking the covenant. This new covenant is not conditional upon your performance. It's just conditional upon your faith in Jesus. If you put faith in Jesus, you get things based on what Jesus did and not what you do. It's, so it's a different, uh, different requirements. The only requirement is faith in Jesus, not your performance. Now, faith in Jesus will affect your performance, and performance will follow, and performance is a part of it, and performance is important, but you aren't uh, rejected or denied any of the benefits of the covenant because of performance. It all has to do with faith. So then he goes on to say in verse uh, 10, he says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. This is just saying that you won't have to have somebody else tell you about this and then you just accept it based on their word. But God Himself will teach you directly. You will be taught of the Lord. Every person who gets born again has to have God supernaturally reveal Himself to them, and they enter into a personal relationship with Jesus. It's just not you taking my word for it or somebody else's, but you have your own direct connection with God. And then in verse, 13, or verse 12... This is part of the New Covenant. Now, this is mind-blowing. Man, you, you need to write this down and go back and study this. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities while I remember no more. This is totally different than the Old Testament law. Today... All of our sins, and I'm going to mention this later, but all of our sins, past, present, and even future sins, have been dealt with completely by Jesus so that, like this verse says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Man, that is radical. And there are many people today who have been, I don't know, I, I just say it the way I think it, but they've been corrupted by religious teaching, that this verse is just anathema to them. They hate it. 
They hate this very thought. How dare you say that God will be merciful to somebody who's unrighteousness and not remember their sins, that it's like they've never sinned. There's many religious people today that they hate that, and yet I, this is a verse. This is Scripture. This is part of our new covenant, that I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. So much of religion today is punishing people. Boy, God's angry at you. God's mad at you. But under the new covenant, God will be merciful to our unrighteousness and our sins and iniquities. He will remember no more. If that's not the attitude that you have, you need to kill a sacred cow. You need to get out from under the Old Testament law. You need to understand this new covenant that we've got, and you need to get set free because that tradition and doctrine of man is negating the love of God and the goodness of God in your life. Well, those are some very, very strong statements that I've made, and I know that there's a lot of people offended by these things, but I'm telling you, it's the truth. The next verse here in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. In that he saith a new covenant. This is referring back to these Old, scripture, Old Testament scriptures that he quoted from Jeremiah chapter 31 when he says, A new covenant I'm going to make. And it says, When he said a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. These are powerful scriptures. And you know, it says that which is old. This is talking about the old covenant is ready to vanish away. And yet the average New Testament Christian today is holding on to the Old Covenant and committed to it, believing that we have to keep the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, that somehow or another it's law and grace. It's not. And again, I haven't got time to totally explain this, but I've got some people I know who have taken these truths and have gone so far that now they believe that the Old Testament law is actually bad and that we need to completely get away with it. There's people that would say that they agree with the secularist who want to take the Ten Commandments out of the Supreme Court and off of the walls in our schools and things like this because the Old Testament law has been superseded. And I agree with these verses here, but there is still a function for the Old Testament law. Let me just turn over and read some of this out of 1 Timothy. It says in verse 5, Now the end of the commandment is charity. And again, I wish I had time to put all this in its, its uh, perspective, but he's talking about the end or the fulfillment, the completion of the Old Testament law, the commandment, is charity, God's kind of love, out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. Boy, this is so true. People today who say that you still need to keep the law, you still need to live by the law, they don't even know what they're saying. God's law has 10,000 different parts to it, but it all makes up one law. And if you have broken one law, you have become guilty of all, James chapter 2, verse 10. So people who are preaching the law and saying, man, you still got to live by the law, they don't even know what they're saying. If I was to say, so do you keep everything? Do you do? Well, no, no, I'm not perfect, but... And then they start comparing themselves with somebody else. See, they don't even understand what the law is about. The law isn't to get you right with God. It's to show you how 
wrong you are, to make you so condemned that you despair of ever saving yourself and you just call out to God for mercy. And once you get the mercy of God, then you don't have to live by this law anymore. So it says, again, that they don't understand what they say nor whereof they affirm. But in verse 8, but we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. He's the guy, Paul is the one that wrote half of the New Testament books. He's the one that was the apostle of grace. He gave the revelation of the gospel, the grace of God. And here's this man saying that there is a right use of the law, even for a New Testament believer. So it says, we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man. Well, who's a righteous man? Anybody who's born again has been made righteous in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For he hath made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. If you are born again, Ephesians 4, 24, you were created in righteousness and true holiness. So this is saying that the law is not made for a person who's been born again. It's not for the saved. It is for the unsaved, for the unrighteous man. It says, The law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for manstealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, etc., so there still is a right use of the law. The law is to show us God's standard of right and wrong, but with that law comes guilt and condemnation. The law will never give you a compliment. The law has no mercy. It has no grace. Is there a place for it? Yes, for the people who are trusting that they are good and that they're going to set their own standards. Like, I don't care what the Bible says. Homosexuality is just fine today. This is normal. Adultery, shacking up and living with people is just fine. Lying and stealing and, and cheating and misrepresenting things. This is all fine. Everybody does it. It's okay. For that person, God gave the law. And when the law came, it made sin revive and you die. And it condemns you and shows you that if you are going to trust in your own goodness then you've got to be perfect. If you make one thing wrong out of a hundred, it's the same as if you made a hundred wrong. You, you missed it. That's the purpose of the law. And it has a purpose today. In our society, not everybody's born again. You know what? If you're truly born again and seeking God, you don't need the law to sit there and just point out everything that's wrong in your life. If you were truly in relationship with God, God will teach you to love Him and to love people more than you love yourself. And you would never go out and break the law. You'd never steal from a person if you loved God and loved that person. If you truly loved your mate, you'd never commit adultery on your mate. If you truly loved God, you'd never be a homosexual. You're, in a sense, slapping him in the face saying you were wrong, creating male and female. It's all male. It's all female. You would never do those things. But not everybody's in relationship with God, and so there needs to be this standard of right and wrong, and we still have a right use of the law today. And like I said, the vast majority of people are over here in law to where they are letting the law condemn them, and they don't understand the new covenant that we've been given, that it is not based on our performance. It's just 
totally based on whether you made Jesus your Lord. And if you've done that, then the law isn't made for you. The law is made for people that don't know Him to convict them of their sin and to show them that they need a Savior. It's, as it says in Galatians chapter 3, it shuts you up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. In other words, you say, you know, I shouldn't be living this way. I think I'm going to make a New Year's resolution and I'm going to head in this direction. Well, here's the law condemning you and showing you that you're still missing it. So you say, all right, I'm going to go this direction. You head this way. Here's the law. It'll condemn you and show you you missed it. Well, I go this way. And it just walls you up so that you can't move. And the only way you can look is up and say, oh, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. That's the purpose of the law is to drive you out of yourself and out of you trying to earn God's favor and just show you that if you've missed it in the slightest detail, you've missed the whole thing and you need to repent. Look at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in verse 55, it says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Think about that. That is a radical statement. This is the Apostle Paul writing, the person who wrote the gospel, who revealed the grace of God, the new covenant, and he says says that the strength of sin is the law. What does that mean? Why did God give something that strengthened sin? Why did God give the law? Because you had already sinned, but many of us didn't understand how deadly that sin was. We, we thought, I'm better than this person over here. You know, the Scripture says that they comparing themselves among themselves and measuring themselves by themselves are not wise. And people do this constantly, and they think, well, if those old hypocrites down there at church make it, I'm going to make it. And so you compare yourself. But the problem is God didn't use the hypocrites at church as your standard. He's not going to judge you based on somebody else. It says in Romans 3:23, all of sinning comes short of the glory of God. The glory of God is shown in the face of Jesus Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Jesus is the glory of God. Every one of us is short of perfection. So the truth is, we had already been corrupted by sin. Even as a child, we were all corrupted by sin. And we needed to know it. So Why did God give something that strengthened sin instead of something that strengthened us in our battle against sin? Because sin had already beaten you and you just didn't know it. And you needed to know that sin had already won this game. You are not going to overcome sin. The only way you can deal with it is to just have it forgiven by the grace and the goodness of God. So God gave something that made sin even stronger in your life. It strengthened it. You know, I heard a man one time use this illustration that if you could imagine a bull laying in a pasture, you know, chewing his cud, and here comes somebody, that old bull nature wants to rise up and charge this person. But let's say that the bull got convicted. You know, this is sin. I shouldn't be this way. I'm going to change. From now on, I'm not a bull anymore. I'm a sheep. I'm just going to sit here and baa instead of butt. Did you know that just making that kind of a decision doesn't change your nature? That bull is by nature a bull. All you have to do is stand in front of it with a red flag. And boy, you raise this red flag and all of a sudden that old bull nature rises up and it charges and then all of a sudden it's brought out of its deception that you know what? Just me saying I've changed didn't change me. I'm still by nature a bull. 
And this is what the law did. The law was like a red flag. It didn't make us a sinner. The law didn't make us sin, but the law just gave such a perfect standard and demand perfection that it drew out this sin on the inside of us. It actually strengthened our desire to sin. You know, I haven't really got the words to express this, but I have thought about this, that when I was a kid, you know, you used to dare people to do things. And I remember one time specifically daring a guy to walk across a log across a creek. And it was a slippery log. And I knew he was going to fall into the creek. And he knew it too. And so he didn't want to do it. But you know what I began to do? I just said, you can't do it. You're a sissy. And then I said, I double dog dare you to walk across there. And what I was doing in a sense is the same thing that the law did. The law says you can't live this way. You can't do this. Thou shalt not do this. And there's just something inside of people that when you say thou shalt not, something rises up and says, bless God, I shall. And this guy knew he shouldn't have walked across that law. But when I said, you can't do it. You know what? Something rose up. I'm going to show you. So he tried to walk across and fell in the creek just like I knew that he would. And you know, God created us. And he created us not to be dominated and ruled over. He never wanted Adam and Eve to know the law. If he had, he'd have given it to them. They were still sinless. They were still walking with him and talking with him in the garden. He didn't give the law to sinless people. This is never the way he intended us to live under rules and regulations. He created us to be free, and there's just something inside of people that rebels at being restricted and told you have to do this and have to do that. And I think that God created us to be that way. We resist all of these rules and regulations and stuff. But once we sinned, we needed to know that what we were doing was unacceptable to God. And for those who thought, well, I'm okay, I'm not perfect, but I'm okay, God just says, thou shalt not do this. And all of a sudden, lust for the very thing that we were commanded we couldn't have came up on the inside of us. You know, if, say, for instance, you don't like chocolate, the first thing I'd say is you're probably lying. <laughs> but I have a guy right here on my television staff that he doesn't like chocolate. I mean, I like chocolate. Most people I know like chocolate. Four out of five people like chocolate, and the other one out of five lies a lot. But anyway, if you didn't even like chocolate, if I was to say, I'll give you a million dollars if you will go one year without eating chocolate. And even if you didn't like chocolate and you'd gone years before. But if I put a million dollars out there and said, if you eat any chocolate or even if I am able to read your thoughts, which, you know, the Lord says that if you think adultery, it's like committing adultery. If you think murder, it's like committing murder. If I could somehow or another read your thoughts and if you even think about chocolate, if you even desire chocolate, you lose this million dollars. The moment I put a prize out there and put thou shalt not eat chocolate on it, some of you that didn't even like chocolate would go to lusting for it just because it was forbidden to you. You would go to thinking about it and you would disqualify yourself. The Lord knew that this is the way he created us. And for those people who thought that I'm okay and I, I don't really need God and I'm good enough, God's going to accept me. I don't need a savior. I can save myself. God gave the law, and you know what it did? It strengthened 
sin. It made sin come alive. I'm going to read these verses over in Romans chapter 7, but Paul said, I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And it says, all manner of concupiscence, that means uncontrolled, unrestrained lust was, was fostered in us by the law. So contrary to what a lot of people think, the law wasn't given to help you overcome sin, but the law was given to help sin overcome you so that you would recognize that you can't save yourself, you can't overcome sin on your own, and you just have to cry out to God for mercy. Boy, that is a radical truth that I've said. And do you know what? Very, very, very few Christians understand that. Most Christians are still trying to live under the Old Testament law and think, I've got to do this and I've got to do all of these things to please God. And without knowing it, they're actually making sin come alive. They're actually making themselves lust for things. I can promise you this. I've seen people before that got up and preached strong against uh, immorality and adultery. And of course, there's a right place to say what is a proper standard and a wrong standard. But I've seen, I saw this one guy one time that, I mean, he just turned red in the face. His juggler veins stood out. You could see his veins standing out. He was screaming and yelling against immorality and all kinds of sexual sin. And then he was caught with a prostitute. And you know what? I've seen this many, many times that when you just preach on something and hate it and preach the law on that, you will actually cause the exact sin that you're preaching against. And I know some of you think, no, it's just the opposite. This is what the Scripture says. It says that the law strengthens sin. It does not strengthen you in your battle against sin. It strengthens sin in its battle against you. Then over in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and in verse 6, it says, Who hath also made us, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. The letter here is talking about the Old Testament law. In the next verse, it says, But if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glorious. Now, before I go on, let me just explain what this is. Some people have come to me and said, you're preaching against the law, but what you aren't discerning is that there's different segments of the law. There was the ceremonial law that had to do with the feast days and the sacrifices and wearing certain garments and uh, gifts for purification and a sacrifice every new moon, etc. And all of that has passed away, the ceremonial law. But the Ten Commandments, the, the core of the law, the morality standards, those things still apply to us today. Well, look at this. If the ministration of death written and engraven in stones, which part of the law was written and engraven in stone? This is talking about when Moses was up on the mount and God literally wrote the Ten Commandments with his finger on those tablets. That's what it's talking about. You can't get away with just saying, well, the ceremonial law is gone, but we still have to observe all of these uh, Ten Commandments and all of the moral standards. Well, now, there's still benefit to the moral standards. I'm not going to get in and teach on all of that, but we don't live under this. It was the law that was engraven in stones that he's calling administration of death. It didn't give life. It gave death. 
YOU KNOW, IN THE NEW TESTAMENT, LIFE IS ATTRIBUTED TO JESUS, SUCH AS JOHN CHAPTER 10, VERSE 10, THE THIEF COMETH NOT BUT FOR TO STEAL AND TO KILL AND TO DESTROY, BUT I AM COME THAT YOU MIGHT HAVE LIFE AND HAVE IT MORE ABUNDANTLY. ROMANS CHAPTER 8, BUT THE MINISTRATION OF DEATH IS TALKING ABOUT THOSE uh, COMMANDMENTS, BUT LIFE COMES THROUGH JESUS. AND JUST ALL THE WAY THROUGH SCRIPTURE, LIFE IS ASSOCIATED WITH THE NEW COVENANT. THIS IS SAYING THAT THE LAW THAT WAS WRITTEN AND ENGRAVEN IN STONES WAS A MINISTRY OF DEATH, NOT A MINISTRY OF LIFE, A MINISTRY OF DEATH. AND THEN IN VERSE 9, IT SAYS, FOR IF THE MINISTRATION OF CONDEMNATION BE GLORY, MUCH MORE DOTH THE MINISTRATION OF RIGHTEOUSNESS EXCEEDING GLORY. NOW IT'S CALLING THE OLD TESTAMENT LAW A MINISTRATION OF CONDEMNATION. ROMANS CHAPTER 8 VERSE 1 SAYS, THERE IS THEREFORE NOW NO CONDEMNATION TO THEM WHO ARE IN CHRIST JESUS, WHO WALK NOT AFTER THE FLESH, BUT AFTER THE SPIRIT. SO CONDEMNATION IS FROM THE DEVIL. THE LAW BROUGHT CONDEMNATION. IN THE OLD TESTAMENT LAW, IT BROUGHT CONDEMNATION. IT'S CALLED A MINISTRY OF CONDEMNATION. BUT IN THE NEW TESTAMENT, THE DEVIL IS THE ONE WHO BRINGS CONDEMNATION, AND ONE OF THE THINGS THAT HE USES IS THE OLD TESTAMENT LAW. A MISUNDERSTANDING, THINKING THAT PEOPLE HAVE TO SOMEHOW OR ANOTHER BE WORTHY IN ORDER TO RECEIVE THE BLESSINGS OF GOD. I HAD A WOMAN COME TO ME ONE TIME, AND SHE WAS, she was ON HER LAST LEG. SHE WAS DYING. AND SHE SAYS, I KNOW GOD CAN HEAL, BUT I JUST DON'T FEEL WORTHY. AND I TOLD HER, I SAID, YOU AREN'T. AND IT JUST SHOCKED HER. BECAUSE SHE WAS THINKING, WELL, I'M TRYING TO BE WORTHY. I'M TRYING TO EARN IT. I'M TRYING TO LIVE UP TO IT. BUT NO, YOU AREN'T WORTHY. NONE OF US ARE WORTHY. IF WE GOT WHAT WE DESERVED, EVERY SINGLE PERSON THAT'S WATCHING ME, MYSELF INCLUDED, WOULD GO TO HELL. NOBODY DESERVES SALVATION. WE AREN'T WORTHY. BUT THE GOOD NEWS IS YOU DON'T GET WHAT YOU DESERVE. YOU GET WHAT JESUS DESERVED IF YOU WILL JUST SUBMIT YOURSELVES TO HIM AND MAKE HIM YOUR SAVIOR AND NOT TRY AND SAVE YOURSELF. BOY, THAT IS GOOD NEWS. AND YET THERE'S A LOT OF PEOPLE. SEE, THE LAW HAS BEEN MISINTERPRETED, MISREPRESENTED, AND PEOPLE TEACH THAT THIS IS WHAT GOD DEMANDS OF YOU, AND UNLESS YOU DO THIS AND THIS AND THIS, GOD WON'T HEAL YOU. GOD WON'T ANSWER YOUR PRAYER. GOD WON'T BLESS YOU. THAT'S AN OLD TESTAMENT LAW MENTALITY, AND THAT'S ADMINISTRATION OF CONDEMNATION. YOU ARE GOING TO BE CONDEMNED BECAUSE THE LAW WILL ALWAYS POINT OUT YOUR FAILURE. IT DOESN'T MATTER IF YOU DO BETTER THAN YOU'VE EVER DONE. It'll, IT WON'T GIVE YOU A COMPLIMENT ON HOW YOU'VE IMPROVED. IT'LL JUST SAY YOU'RE STILL SHORT, AND IT'LL CONDEMN YOU. THE LAW IS ADMINISTRATION OF CONDEMNATION. IT'S ADMINISTRATION OF DEATH. ACCORDING TO 1 CORINTHIANS 15, 56, IT STRENGTHENS SIN. CAN YOU SEE THAT THE LAW IS NOT THIS POSITIVE THING THAT WAS GIVEN TO BRING YOU INTO RELATIONSHIP WITH GOD? THE PURPOSE OF THE LAW WAS TO SHOW YOU HOW FAR FROM GOD YOU WERE. LOOK AT THIS IN ROMANS CHAPTER 3 AND IN VERSE 19. NOW WE KNOW THAT WHAT THINGS SOEVER THE LAW SAITH, IT SAITH TO THEM WHO ARE UNDER THE LAW. BEFORE I GO ON WITH THIS, LET ME JUST POINT THIS OUT. DID YOU KNOW THAT THE LAW WAS NEVER INTENDED FOR EVERYBODY? THE NEW TESTAMENT CHURCH WAS NEVER INTENDED TO BE UNDER THE LAW. AND YET it, EVERYBODY THAT I'VE EVER KNOWN THAT CAME UP IN CHURCH HAS BEEN UNDER THE LAW AND UNDER A WRONG CONCEPT AND STUFF. DID YOU KNOW THAT THE JEWS WERE GIVEN THE LAW? THE GENTILES WERE NEVER UNDER THE LAW. MAN, THAT'S AN AMAZING STATEMENT RIGHT THERE. MOST PEOPLE THINK THAT, NO, THIS IS JUST FOR EVERYBODY. IT WAS GIVEN TO THE JEWS TO MAINTAIN 
their integrity and their purities until the, the Messiah could come and then He would redeem them out from under the law. Galatians chapter 3 talks about that. So it says here in Romans 3, 19, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Here's the purpose of the law, to stop your mouth and to make you guilty. What does that mean, stop your mouth? Well, it takes away all of your excuses. Somebody's saying, well, it's that woman that you gave me. That's what Adam did the first time he sinned. It's that woman's fault, and you're the one who gave her to him. He kept passing the buck. And ever since then, people are always saying, but you don't understand. I was raised in a dysfunctional home. I had this happen to me. This person treated me this way. It's the color of my skin. The government doesn't give me enough money. And we have all excuses and reasons. There's people out murdering today. Did you know we've got terrorists today? And there's some people trying to say, well, it's not really their fault. They have been brought up in poverty and they have been abused and they have an opinion of Westerners and... and <laughs> I guarantee you, if a person goes out and murders somebody, it's their fault. You can't justify that. But see, this is... The law will take away all of these excuses. The law is for people who are sitting there trying to say, I can't help it. You don't understand. It's in my genes. I was... I have a gene for being an alcoholic. I have a drink gene for being a drug addict. I was created a homosexual. That's not true. None of those things are true. The law takes away all of your excuses. It's just a proper standard of right and wrong, and it stops your mouth. You can't excuse, you can't explain yourself away, and it makes you guilty before God. That's the purpose of the law, is to make you guilty. If you feel guilty, if you feel shame, if you feel condemnation, you're a person that has been under the law. He goes on to say in the next verse, it says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law gave you knowledge of sin. It didn't give you knowledge of salvation. It didn't give you knowledge of forgiveness, mercy, the goodness, the grace of God. The law gave you knowledge of sin. The law just seeks and finds sin. You know, it would be like a person who, th this would be a small comparison, but it's similar that a person who's a perfectionist, that they come along and maybe you've done a great job and everybody else just thinks you've done a wonderful job, but a perfectionist will come and they will find the one thing you did wrong. If you're cleaning, they will put on the white gloves and instead of seeing how good everything looks, they will feel underneath something. They will run their gloves across something, you know, just looking for something. That's the law. The law is just going to give you a knowledge of sin. It'll never compliment you and say, boy, it looks great. You've done a good job, but here's something that you could have done better. It'll just always show you how wrong you are. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I could put all of this in its proper balance, but I don't want to miss the point I'm trying to make here. But there is a right use of the law, but overall it was just to give you a knowledge of sin, to make you guilty before the Lord, to stop your mouth, take away all of your excuses. And then it goes on to say in the next verse, Romans 3:21, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, this is saying that you can get into right standing with God without keeping the law, without doing all of these things. Even though you've broken the law, you can still be in right standing with God. 
And there are legalists that just get so offended. No, sir, you not only have to put faith in Jesus, but you've also got to live holy. God won't answer your prayers just based on what Jesus did. You have to go to church. You have to pay your tithes. You have to pray. You have to do this, this, and this. And that's wrong. That's the law. And there are a lot of people that are living by that standard and misunderstanding these things. The law gave you knowledge of sin, but now there is right standing with God without keeping the law. In Romans chapter 7, it says in verse 5, it says, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law... Man, that's a radical statement right there. This goes right along with 1 Corinthians 15, 56 that we've already read, that the law strengthens sin. 2 Corinthians 3, 7, the law is a ministration of death. 2 Corinthians 3, 9, the law is a ministration of condemnation. The law gave knowledge of sin. The law made you guilty. And now here it says that the law gave motion to sin. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. The fruit of the law is death. Not only just physical death, dying and ceasing to be alive, but depression, discouragement, guilt, condemnation, sickness, poverty, anything that came as a result of sin, it's death. In verse 6, but now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held. Let me ask you, what part of being delivered from the law do we not understand? There was a reason why those things had to happen, but we are delivered from it, showing that it never was really God's best for us. So now it says in verse 6, But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What should we say then? Is the law sin? You know, this is a logical question. Paul had been preaching against the law. I am preaching against the law that we are out from under this old covenant. We're in a new covenant. And a logical question is, are you saying that the law is sin? No, I'm not saying that. Paul wasn't saying it. He says, God forbid. No, that's not what I'm saying. There is still a function of the law, but it is not as it's been presented. You know, I've been flirting with this and trying to step around it because I don't want to lose the point I'm making, but let me just address this real briefly. I am not under the law in the sense that if I break the law, if I don't live up to its standards, that God is going to reject me, punish me, or any form of that. And I am not under that law. But does that mean then that it has no benefit and that I just should forget it and that I should never read the Old Testament law? I shouldn't think about the Ten Commandments? No, I'm not under their, the law because it, every one of us have broken it. And if you don't keep the whole law, you come under the curse if you were trying to relate to God by that. So I don't relate to God based on how well I've conformed to any standard of anything. When the devil comes at me and condemns me, instead of me trying to justify myself and say, wait a minute, I'm better than I've ever been. I'm going to church more. I'm praying more. I'm seeking more. I'm studying the Word more. The moment I start trying to justify myself, I've lost because I am not perfect and He will just show me my imperfection and then all of my faith will dissipate because my faith was in myself, not in the Savior. So I am not under the law like that. But does that mean that I just ignore the law and it has no bearing on me? No, if I'm in a situation and I, you know, I'm tempted to not tell the truth, I don't have to just 
out-and-out out lie, but I'm not going to tell people something. I'm not going to be candid. I'm not going to be open and honest with them because it could work to my own detriment. Is that what God would want me to do? Would He mind me telling a little white lie? Well, I can go back to Exodus chapter 20, and it says, Thou shalt not bear false witness. Now, even though God's not going to punish me, and I'm not going to be judged, and He loves me, even if I go ahead and compromise, but if I want to know, God, what is your right standard? What would you have me to do? I can go back to the law and see what the perfect thing to do is, and that is not to bear false witness. And this is saying not just don't tell a lie, but you could tell a person the truth, but only tell them a portion of the truth and misrepresent, and that would be false witness. And so I turn back to the law and I say, well, God, thank you that I'm not under this and that you aren't going to judge me and punish me, and thank you that I'm only accepted with you through Jesus, but I know that what you gave in the law, it wasn't sin. It was all perfect. It, that's the problem. It was perfect and I wasn't. And I can still benefit from it and say, I know that you don't want me to bear a false witness, and that'll tell me what I need to do in a certain situation. So I still benefit by the law, but I'm not under it anymore. So this is what Paul is saying. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. So he's saying that there is still a purpose to the law to show us what is right and what is wrong. But where you go wrong with the law is when you think, uh-oh, now this is what God says is right, and so I've got to do this or God won't love me. God won't bless me. God won't move in my life. No, that's wrong. None of us have ever lived up to the law perfectly. And it's not just you do the best you can and then grace makes up the difference. You can't say, I'm going to do the best I can, and if it's only 70%, God's grace will make up the rest of it. You can't mix law and grace. You either are justified in the sight of God through faith in Jesus, period, or you are justified by your own works, which can never happen. You can never be perfect. But you aren't justified by a combination of the two. You doing 80% God providing the other 20%. No, you, the law gave you knowledge of sin and there is still benefit for us knowing what, is, what God considers right and what God considers wrong, what is righteous and what is sin. There's still benefit to that. But you can't come under this thing of feeling like, God, I've got to do these things for you to love me. God loves you because you've accepted Jesus and that's it. He loves you because He is love, not because you are lovely. Man, this is great, great news. So he goes on to say in verse 8, But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, sin was dead. Man, look at this eighth verse. Sin took occasion by the commandment. The commandment gave sin an occasion, an opportunity against us, and it wrought in us all manner of concupiscence. The word concupiscence means uncontrolled, unrestrained lust or desire. Did you know that the law will actually make you lust for the very thing it tells you not to do? I had a minister friend of mine who was listening to my teaching, this exact teaching right here on the true nature of God. He was listening to this in his study, and he saw the point that I was making right here, and he just thought he'd try this out. So he went out into the back door of his house, and he had his son with some friends over there, and they were playing. And they'd been playing for an hour, and everything had been fine, nothing wrong. 
And he says, you're doing a great job, but whatever you do. And then he pointed at a flower right by the back door. And he says, thou shalt not spit on this flower. And then he went in the house and looked out his study window. He said, those kids had been playing for an hour and they didn't even know that that flower existed. But the moment he says, thou shalt not spit on this flower, half of those kids went over and spit directly on that flower. And the others were standing there with their mouth just drooling, wishing that they had enough courage to spit on the flower. But they hadn't even noticed the flower until he says, thou shalt not. And then all of a sudden, man, they lusted for the very thing. That's what this is talking about, that the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, sin was dead. Did you know when you go to preaching the law, thou shalt not, you actually make sin come alive. And I know that this is counterintuitive. Most religious people think, no, the way you stop, uh, for instance, a church, the way you get them to start living holy is go to preaching on holiness and preaching against adultery and preaching against this and preaching against it. This is saying just the opposite. You go to preaching the law, you're going to have people start lusting for the very thing you're preaching against. There may be people that never even thought about going and committing adultery, but you go to preaching against it and describing how damaged it is and talking about adultery and stuff, and they'll go to lusting for the very thing that you're preaching against. That's the way that the law works. In verse 9, it says, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. Boy, that is one strong statement. Paul here is saying that I was alive without the law once. What does that mean? You know, I could spend an hour on this. I'm going to say this very quickly. But when we were born, we were born in sin. Isaiah, or excuse me, uh, Psalms chapter 51, David said, In sin did my mother conceive me. That didn't mean it was an adulterous relationship. It means we were all born with a sin nature. We were by nature a child of the devil. But... A little child doesn't have that sin imputed unto them because they haven't participated and yielded to it yet. So if a child dies before they reach what is typically called like an age of accountability, if a child was to die before that time, even though they were born with the sin nature, they still go to be with the Lord. There is this period of innocency. This is what Paul is talking about. That I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, when the rules and the regulations came, and I broke them intentionally, knowing what I was doing, then he died. Well, that's an amazing statement right there. Again, I could spend a lot more time explaining that. And in verse 10, it says, And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. And this is amazing. The commandment doesn't produce life. It produces death. This is exactly what the Scripture said over in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6. And it says, The commandment deceived me, and it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. The commandment isn't sin. The commandments are perfect. The laws that God put down in the Old Testament law, they are perfect, but we're imperfect. And it was a mismatch. And imperfect, carnal, 
sinful flesh could never match up to the perfect standard that God had. And so the law wasn't wrong, but the law wound up being an agent of condemnation and guilt to us because we had all come short of it. And like it says right here, the purpose of the law was so that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. In other words, people were dulling themselves. So everybody sins. Everybody does these things. And so I guess if everybody does it, you know, we're all going to be okay. No, God gave the law to make sin so exceedingly sinful, so vile, so bad, that it would make you so sick of yourself and of your sin that you would quit trying to save yourself and instead you'd just come to the Lord and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let me share this passage out of Romans chapter 5 and in verse 13. It says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. That is a radical passage of Scripture. You know, most people, it's a short verse and they just pass over this and they don't think about it. But to me, this is like one of the main Scriptures in the New Testament that when there is no law, sin is not imputed. You know what this means? That prior to the giving of the law, which happened through Moses, which was approximately 2,000 years after the fall of Adam and Eve, until the law came, 2,000 years after the fall, God wasn't imputing people's sins unto him. What does the word impute mean? It's a, an accounting term. You know, back in the days when people used to write down, uh, you know, a, a ledger and stuff. It means to record on the books. To put on the books is what it literally means. And what we could compare it to today is if you take a credit card, a credit card doesn't pay for anything. It just imputes it unto you. And if you don't believe that, don't pay your credit card bill when it comes in and see if they'll say, well, you've already paid for it. No, you hadn't paid for it until you get the bill from the credit card company and then pay for it. So... <clears throat> The way we use a credit card, it's imputed unto you. In other words, it's held against you. It's recorded. But this says that when that sin is not imputed when there is no law. Prior to the law, God wasn't recording people's sins against them. Now, some people struggle with this, but real quickly, let me just say that overall, God was merciful to people's sins. For instance, Abraham is a person that was called the friend of God. Genesis chapter 12, he was called and God blessed him and things began to happen. But it wasn't because Abraham did everything right. Abraham did some major mistakes. He lied about his wife twice and was willing to let other men take them and commit adultery with her to save his own skin. That was wrong. Abraham didn't do everything right. As a matter of fact, did you know that the woman he married, Sarah, his wife, was his half-sister? And according to Leviticus chapter 18, if you marry a half-sister, it's an abomination in the sight of God and you have to be put to death. If Abraham would have been living under the law, he would have been put to death. But instead of being put to death, he was the blessed of the Lord because God wasn't imputing their sins unto him. He wasn't holding against them. It was only after the law came that God began to start treating people that way. You can take the very first person that broke the Old Testament law. It was a man in Exodus chapter 16 who went and picked up sticks on the Sabbath day so he could make a fire and cook some food. 
But it was after the Sabbath had been instituted, and he broke the command about not working on the Sabbath. So Moses took him and put him into like a prison, shut him up until he could hear from God. And God told him in an audible voice, he said, kill him, show him no mercy, stone him to death and make an example out of him. The very first person that broke the Old Testament law was put to death for picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. But the very first person after the fall was Cain who went in and killed his brother Abel. And that wasn't right. It was wrong. Murder was wrong. But instead of God killing him, he extended mercy towards him and put a mark on Cain. Can you see the difference between the law? When the, when the law came, sin began to be imputed, held against people, and people began to be punished for that sin. Prior to the law, people were not punished. And did you know that after the law, God is not imputing our sins unto us. Let me read this to you out of Romans, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and in verse 17. It says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that's just old English way of saying, here it is, this, this is what the ministry of reconciliation is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. Remember Romans chapter 5, in verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Over here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself by not imputing their trespasses unto them. So until the law came, God wasn't imputing, recording people's sins against them. And after the law, the law ceased with Jesus. Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to all them that believe. Now, again, that's in Romans chapter 10, verse 4. It's not the end of the law. The law still exists, and it has a purpose, but not for the believer. It has a purpose for the unbeliever. We shared that out of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. But the law still exists for the people that don't know the Lord. But for those who have entered into the new covenant, we are not under the law. We are under grace. And this is saying that sin is not imputed when there is no law. We aren't under the law and God is not imputing sin unto us today. And it's reflected in this statement that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. We aren't under the law. The New Testament believer is not being judged and punished and rejected because of the law. You know, the average Christian today has somehow or another taken the New Covenant of grace and mixed it with the Old Testament law. You know, this is what Paul was talking about over here in Galatians chapter 1. Let me turn over and read this. He was writing to these Galatians. He's the one that brought the gospel to them. And he said in Galatians 1, 6, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. 
He says, I'm shocked that you have left the pure gospel to go into something that is a perversion of the gospel. See, it would just be easier if people just flat out said, no, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't trust in Jesus. Jesus doesn't have anything to do with my salvation. It would be easier to counter that than it would to say, oh yeah, I believe that you have to make Jesus your Lord. I believe that you have to trust in Jesus, but you also have to live holy and you have to do everything right. And God won't answer your prayers if you don't go to church and pay your tithes and do this. To mix the gospel with that is worse than to just totally reject the gospel. And somehow this is where the body of Christ is today. Our modern day church has perverted and has mixed this. And as you go through the book of Galatians, boy, Paul says some amazing things here. Like in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you? Boy, he calls them foolish Galatians. You've been bewitched. This is a demonic deception. And then he says, This only what I learn of you, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. He's talking about when they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Did they do something to earn it or was it a gift from God? And <laughs> the obvious answer is it was a gift from God. And yet, he says, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? And then, man... All of this is really good. I'm skipping some powerful verses here, but let me turn over to chapter 5, the conclusion of this letter. He says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. This is talking about the Old Testament law. In verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Did you know circumcision was something that was demanded under the Old Testament law? And if a male wasn't circumcised, they had to be killed. It was punishable by death. It was one of the foundation principles of the Old Testament law. And here's Paul saying that if you are circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Of course, Paul himself was circumcised. He said that over in Philippians chapter 3 that he was circumcised on the eighth day. So he's not saying that if you've had this rite of circumcision uh, done to you that somehow or another you are incapable of ever having a relationship. But he's saying if you are trusting in that, if you are putting your faith in what you've done instead of what Jesus did for you, that Christ will profit you nothing. And he goes on and he says, For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to the whole law. And again, you can't just do one part of it and become circumcised. You've got to also, you've got to keep the whole law. You are a debtor to the whole law. And then he says in verse 4, Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Those are some strong, strong statements. And sad to say, this is exactly what's happened in our modern-day church. If you are trusting in your church attendance, if you are trusting in your Bible study, if you are trusting in how much you pray, if you are trusting in your holy living that you don't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do, if you're trusting in any of these things, if this is what makes you accepted to God, you are falling from grace. Christ is profiting you nothing. You are under the law. 
Again, you may say, no, I'm not under the law. I don't observe the feast days and I don't offer animal sacrifices. You may not do the things that were prescribed in the old law, but you just now have a New Testament law. It's the same principle. It's the same mindset that you've got to do one through 10 before God will answer your prayer. That's the law. But remember those verses I started with that where there is no law, God doesn't impute sin. We aren't under the law now, and God is not holding sin against us. Go back to this example of the credit card. What if I went to pay for something, and God just comes up and pushes me out of the way and says, put it on my credit card? Man, if He did that and paid for what I did, there is no way that I would let them send me a bill and say, well, I know that God paid for what you purchased, but you're the one who got it. You ought to pay something. No, if God paid for it, I'm not going to pay for it again. But in a sense, see, Jesus paid for all of our sins, and yet Christians are coming along and still feeling like, but I sinned, I did wrong. And because of that, you, can't, you just can't believe that God would really love you and accept you because you did so wrong. You just do not understand that He's already paid for all of this. Matter of fact, I was over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and I was reading about how that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their sins unto them. And then look down in verse 21. It says, For He hath made Him, talking about God the Father, hath made Him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. God the Father, He paid our debt. He paid a debt that we couldn't pay. It was bigger than any of us could pay. He paid it by making Jesus become sin for us. And then He not only wiped out our debt, but then He put to our credit all of the goodness of God. We not only got our sins wiped away, but we had the righteousness of God imputed unto us. We had our sin imputed to Jesus and Jesus' righteousness imputed to us. Man, that's awesome. And because of this, God looks at you and sees you just as if you had never sinned. And somebody's probably listening to this and thinking, hey man, it's great news. Now I can just go live in sin because I'm not under the law. You ought to get saved. If you ever, if you understand what I'm talking about, the love of God that was so exhibited towards us in pain for all of our sins, past, present, and even future sins. That is so awesome that if you really receive that, it would make you serve God more accidentally than you ever have on purpose before. You would live for God holier under grace than you ever did under legalism. You know, I'm really glad that God gave me this message and called me to preach this message because you can't say that I'm preaching this so that we can go live in sin. You know, this is foolish. It's like Paul said. He says, I'm speaking like a lost man. I would never say this except just to make my point. But in comparison to people, I've lived better than most people. I'm living holier than most of you watching this have ever thought about. I've never taken a drink of liquor, never smoked a cigarette, never said a word of profanity. I've never tasted coffee. Amen. I have lived a separated life. You can't say that I'm preaching about the grace of God so that I can go live in sin. That is not true. 
The grace of God, it says, teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. If you truly understand the grace of God, it's not going to free you to sin, but it'll free you from the guilt and the penalty of sin. And it'll make you serve God more accidentally than you ever have on purpose before. Boy, this is awesome. We hope your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. It's the faithful support of people like you who make this ministry possible. We invite you to prayerfully consider becoming a partner with Andrew Womack Ministries. We maintain a website at awmi.net. Our helpline number is 719-635-1111, or you can write us at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you'll reach out by faith and receive everything that's yours through God's grace.